and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. Also, we have a, another segment of this called NARC Troopers. NARC Troopers is a podcast, a vlog, and a whole bunch of articles, almost a hundred of them, on medium.com. Today we're talking about when sex is their drug of choice. The somatic narcissist is a sex addict. And like all junkies, their addiction is the poison that kills them. Addiction is defined by the American Society of Addiction Medicine as a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits of the brain lead to characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. The number of people in the United States with sex addiction is estimated to be between 30 and 40 million people, according to recent studies. It manifests as uncontrollable compulsions with pornography, masturbation, phone sex, cyber sex, escorts, prostitutes, meaningless affairs, strip clubs, voyeurism, and exhibitionism. The causes range from a dysfunctional family dynamic in early childhood to biochemical imbalances to maybe even being sexually abused as a child. A strong correlation exists between sex addiction and childhood trauma. That's something that keeps coming up over and over that I hear. Surveys of people with sex addictions indicate that about 72% were physically abused and 81% were sexually abused in a study that has been done recently. In a culture of immediate gratification, that's kind of what it is today, right? 2020, immediate gratification. We don't want to wait. Where a feast of flesh is available on the web, just a click and a tap away. You know, it's no wonder that the number of addicts is on the rise. Our culture grows it, feeds it, makes you feel like you can't live without it. For for the person who is a somatic narcissist, sex addiction takes on added pathology. The somatic narcissist prioritizes his sexual conquest, physical aesthetics, youthfulness, sexual skills, and above all else, just their health. They're just really hung up on their appearance, their bodies, and sex. When paired with narcissistic or psychopathic disorders, the somatic appropriates other people's bodies um, and just sort of treats them as resources to be mined, you know, resources to be mined, like to consume, manipulate, alter, invade, and abuse. They absorb their partner in every way, just like a sponge. You know, they just soak it up. They become an extension of 
of each other and it, they set it up that way. Um, they adapt and adopt the traits and characteristics of the person that they're coupling with. It's as if their partner is just a participant in a pornographic production or maybe just a toy that can be played with at will until it's not new and shiny and then you just throw it away and get a new one, right? Sex addiction hijacks a healthy life and a vibrant future many, many times, most of the time. Uh, if you sit around a SAA meeting, Sexual um, Addiction Anonymous, boy, you're just going to hear so much, so many stories of loss and, um, you know, regret and guilt and shame and all of this, you know, stuff. Well, yeah, they're not necessarily narcissists. You don't have to have, you know, to be a sex addict, you don't have to be a narcissist. And some narcissists aren't sex addicts. But when you have those two together, oh my gosh. Um, let me tell you, that's just the worst. Um, so there's consequences when you're a sex addict, right? Uh, increased health risk, financial difficulties, shattered relationships, broken marriages, um, even, you know, legal action or or something sometimes that can go to jail for doing criminal things. Like most other addictions, the problems increase and intensify as the disorder progresses. They get worse as they get older. Yeah, hard to believe, but it's true. Um, when addiction is compounded with this whole narcissistic personality disorder, it becomes a toxic and lethal disease of the mind and the soul. People with cluster B disorders, like the narcissist or the sociopath or psychopath, typically do not feel fear and other emotions like this. They lack these kinds of emotions that regulate behavior. And so imagine, imagine a car on a treacherous mountain road, and this car has no brakes, right? The car has no brakes. You know how that's going to end, right? Um, yeah, you know how that one ends. It's the same thing. So my former husband provided an eye-opening awakening for me. Ooh, yes, cold slap in the face in regard to how sex addiction and narcissism do go hand in hand so much of the time. Well, depending on what kind of narcissist you are. There's different kinds. There's cerebral narcissist, somatic narcissist, low-level, mid-level, high-level, covert, uh, overt, you know, all different kinds. Um, so following, okay, so let me just tell you this. They're following this horrible thing, this acting out is what you call it when they succumb to their sexual compulsions. So following one of these acting out episodes, um, one of the conditions, you know, to stay in the marriage was that he had to attend weekly meetings at SAA. Um, and if he were simply a sex addict with no narcissistic personality disorder, comorbidity, anything like that, I think it, you know, still would have been challenging enough. But both of these together just made it impossible. 
It was a recipe for failure in the 12-step program, as well as a failure to overcome the cycle of narcissistic abuse that is inevitably part of every narcissistically um, disordered individual. So I'm certain that it would have been a completely different journey with a completely different outcome if, you know, he didn't have those two together. His covert somatic narcissism made the SAA experience all but pointless, you know. Um, he went to the meetings for years, and he would come home, and he would proudly present me with his sobriety tokens. You know, they have three months and six months and a year. Yeah. Um, months and years rolled by with him doing that. And I was like, okay. You know, I was ecstatic and hopeful and supportive and like, yeah, you know, when you're in the program, you usually agree with your spouse to have full disclosure policy where they agree to tell you when they act out, like if they watch porn or if they did some other kind of acting out with an inner circle behavior, which is the more serious ones, or an outer circle behavior, which are sort of like the gateway ones. Um, at least that's how he explained it to me. I promised, you know, not to condemn, but to encourage and to be supportive and uh, not be, take it as a personal, um, uh, a personal insult or something to me. But, you know, it was doomed to fail. It, it, it was only another false charade that he was going through, I think, to gain fuel. He wanted to get that appreciation and um, adoration and approval, uh, which gave him fuel, which the narcissist, they're, they're, that is the center of their universe, is the acquisition of this fuel. So, um, so the narcissistic personality disorder made recovery sort of a fake recovery designed to get attention and appreciation and affirmation and all that. I had not fallen from grace quite yet. So he made efforts to be compliant and cooperative. The years that he spent in SAA during our marriage sort of ushered in the devaluation phase of the abuse cycle. And so gradually he stopped going to the meetings. So in the narcissistic abuse cycle, there's idealization or infatuation where they may think that they're in love with their target or victim because they idealize them and think, yes, I believe this person's going to make my life wonderful and they're going to fix all the things that are wrong with me. And for once in my life, this is going to be amazing. And then it isn't. They get bored or something happens. Um, and then devaluation starts. That's the second part of the cycle. And then that's a period of time where they start picking and, and um, you know, turning a cold shoulder and um, finding fault with you and stuff like that. And then finally the discard, which many times, most of the times, happens just, boom, suddenly, like, out of nowhere. Um, so I think that this was kind of part of that. He had no more stories, you know, when he stopped going about how pathetic the others were and how they couldn't control themselves and how he didn't belong there.
That's what he always said. A neurotypical man, a regular man, might have truly come to acknowledge his addiction and make um, an earnest effort to maintain sobriety, but his NPD prevented any authentic accountability or progress. You know, the person that's the narcissist, sociopath, psychopath, they cannot be accountable for anything they ever do. They always blame someone else. They always play the victim. It's always that way. The excessive use of pornography interrupts every conceivable area of life for both the addict and their family and everybody they know in a lot of ways. In my marriage, porn infiltrated not only our personal dynamic, but also his career, his spirituality, and his future. And I have stories about all of those, how it affected me, made me feel less. Like, why am I not enough? Why do you need to watch this? Um, do you think they're sexier than me? Can I try to look like that, them? Should I try to try to, try to look more like that? Um, and then his career, uh, you know, he was asked to leave jobs that he had because of porn addiction where someone would, would see him watching porn and masturbating at work. Um, spirituality. Eventually, he decided he did not believe in God. He doesn't believe in heaven or hell, right or wrong, good or bad. There are no rules. He can do anything. It's all good. It's just this one big hedonistic um, feel good, you know. And so he turned his back on God as a result of this and on his future. Because what future is there? He had a normal future. He had a normal life. We had a home. He had a job. Uh, I, you know, he had a person who loved him very, very much. That would be me. And, uh, you know, those are the kind of things people search for their whole life. Some people never lucky enough to have those things. He had them all. And he just, um, his addiction, his narcissism, uh, made, made it to where those things weren't enough. After 15 years of marriage, he just cycled through this whole abuse pattern with me and um when he exited the marriage you know he had already graduated from porn addiction to actual sexual relations with some people and you know I've always been shocked and appalled at how how many women are eager to sleep with married men with no expectation of anything except a good time they just want a good time Wow, you know, maybe you should think of something else to do to have a good time besides sleep with someone else's husband. You know, that's, that's, man, these people are just slutty whores or something. I don't know. They're not, um, not cool. Not cool, ladies. Don't, don't ever do that. He would accuse me of being too moral, too, you know, um, religiously conservative but you know even though it came as an attack when he would say those things to me I think it was a compliment I understand the value of sexual ethics that incorporates fidelity loyalty devotion intimacy and most importantly real love not the kind of love that gets confused with lust or 
courtesy or being polite, you know, um, that's just, that's not love. That's being polite and, and, um, nice and respectful, but that's not love. Any other sexual ethics that he would claim to have or has had discussion about and has now sort of tried to adopt as his new thing, you know, if it excludes these parts, you know, that I just told you, you know, with the fidelity and the intimacy and the love and all of that, if it doesn't have that, then, you know, really it's not ethics. The word ethics itself well, it would be an oxymoron or something. <laughs> How could it be ethics if it's missing ethics, right? It would be a lack of ethics. I don't think he knows what ethics are. And I don't think the women that sleep with married men know what ethics are. We have a lot of people running around in this world this, these days that don't have any ethics. And it's, it's very sad. It's very horrible. It's not okay. It's not okay. Ew. Nasty. So I knew there were serious flaws in his character, but I'm a strong believer in, you know, saving people or whatever. And I thought he could become a good man. I thought I saw him actually trying. There were signs that it would end badly from the very beginning, but I did not listen. Generally, you know, when these things get started, a really strong chemical reaction to someone is a red flag. You know, if you're feeling some kind of savage, uncontrollable desire for someone, that's usually a common thing that happens with the somatic narcissist. The intensity of your feelings often come from childhood wounds. Yes, that's what it's tapping into with you and this this person. Your childhood wounds, not from a place of real love. It is not love. It is it's the opposite of love. Love has no part in this narcissistic equation. The intensity of feelings is really about the obsessive desire to get your needs met that were never met in your critical formative years. So hypersexuality is really designed to anesthetize stress, loneliness, boredom, sadness, and other disturbing feelings. Sex isn't, isn't being used to feel more it's being used to feel less. You know, they're trying to numb up all the yucky stuff. The somatic narcissist uses other people's bodies to masturbate on and in. Imagine like, you know, boom, explosions, Epcot firework, pyrotechnics, pyrotechnics, epic fornicating. Oh my God. All of that aside, let's just don't even talk about that. Sex with the narcissist is cold, mechanical, emotionally disconnected. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The partner, the person that they're doing this with is often treated as an object that's just sort of an extension of them. The compulsion relieves the discomfort of their inner pain in much the same way that a person with NPD gets all numb and empty to extinguish their inner suffering, shame, or terror that, you know, and they're going to drive, these things drive them to do almost anything to stop this yucky feeling that they have. At some point, they have effectively silenced their inner child and injuries and trauma and all that 
by becoming just like zombies or robots or something. From the outside, most people could not tell what's going on here. They actually think these people are very polite and sweet and cool and nice and chill and all of this kind of stuff, and that's just not right. They appear to be model citizens and all around wonderful people, and but they're wearing a mask. They're wearing a mask. My former husband abandoned a life that, you know, you just don't do that. You know, what he had, what he lost, what he gave up, and now what he has, it's crazy. We were debt-free. Yes, had a beautiful home and we were debt-free. He took those credit cards after he left me. He maxed them all out and has not paid a penny on any of them. I guess he's going to just... I don't know. He's never going to pay him. He doesn't have a way to pay him. He quit his job. He sold his car. He absolutely lost his mind. So, he walked away from all of this. And he just dropped a bomb on it. Burned the whole damn thing to the ground. No warning. No discussion. No compassion. No mercy. No nothing. So now he's living a wild life infused with open relationships fueled by sex, drugs, and no rules. Things like morals, virtue, duty, loyalty, integrity, honor, respect, faith, all those things that decent people value, that decent people try to achieve, these things don't exist in his world. He doesn't believe in God because he is Lord and master of his decadent perverse, hedonistic domain. He's off the chain, a feral dog who indulges without remorse, betrays without conscience. The person with a cluster B disorder is incapable of being a real human with real feelings. A person with sex addiction is capable of depravity beyond the imagination. And when you put these two together, Oh, my God. He will live in the shadows, a gutter dweller, a lost boy drunk on his lust and delusions till he dies, probably. He will paint himself as the nice guy, the sweet man, the helpful citizen, you know, the patron of this and that, the benefactor, the good guy, and the victim, oh, of terrible treatment by all these people. He will imagine himself successful and superior, a god among men. He will gradually be consumed by his dysregulated and disordered mind and this whole junky brain thing he has going on. You know, I would pity him if he had not just destroyed me so completely and caused such harm to my whole family. I can forgive him for what he did. Because if I don't forgive him, it's going to be like a poison that's going to kill me. I can try to forgive him. <laughs> so sure, I can do that completely. I can accept. Here's, yes. I can accept that some people are not what they appear to be and will deceive you. <sighs> I can give up on my on, on any possibility that he's ever going to be able to understand any of this or have any kind of morals or conscience or devotion to one person. You know, it has done its damage. 
I don't think I'm ever going to recover. The trauma from emotional abuse and betrayal has given me um, acute panic disorder and PTSD. And these things sometimes never go away. They, they never go away. You just have to learn to manage it and live beside it. You know, loving a man with narcissistic personality disorder and sex addiction, it's changed me forever. Uh, I lost everything because I couldn't leave him. And as a result, his actions destroyed us all. There are people in this world who are so broken and damaged, they can never be saved. Please believe that. I didn't. I wish somebody had said, oh my gosh, you need to believe this. Anyone who tells you otherwise is a fool or a liar. The most you can do is try to get away and stay away and claim a life of virtue. They're never going to understand that. So it is. So it shall be. Fifteen months after he discarded me, one bright blue summer day, threw me away like useless trash, kicked me to the curb without mercy, and erased me and our nearly two decades of marriage together like it never even happened. I still pray for him. I don't believe he can change. I don't believe he can be healed. So I don't pray for that anymore. I pray for his soul. It helps me to begin to put the pieces of my shattered life back together again. And I always end with the, <laughs> I can't say it, the hopo opa pono pono, uh, the ho po no pono, the hopo no pono. Yeah, it's this ancient um, sort of prayer, Hawaiian prayer practice of forgiveness and reconciliation. I do that a lot. It's, it, it is like a prayer. It's the process of making things right with your relationships, with others, with the ancestors, the earth, the source of all things, yourself. And it goes like this. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Thank you. I love you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Thank you. I love you. That's it. That's it. It's so simple. This is a glimpse of the future if you love a person with personality disorder or sex addiction. What I've shared with you just now. And you know, I I wish I knew in the beginning how it would end. It, it would have changed everything. But it's not too late for you, I hope. So... Um, I hope that you can find peace and hope and recovery and all of the things that you need to find to set yourself free to accept what's happened and to move on because there's no going back. There's no happy ending. That person that has the narcissism the sex addiction, the sociopathy, psychopathy, that kind of stuff, they're never going to be okay. And, and they don't love you. 
and they never will. So you do the only thing you can do, and you accept that, and you let them go. I'm still working on it. I haven't done it successfully. I've dreamed about him every night for about a week, and for the last 15 months, I dream about him at least four, three or four times a week. It's, um, there's a million triggers, and I'm even having to sell our home to get out of it because there's just too many memories here. He's imprinted. He's in every room. I keep waiting for him to come out of the bathroom and walk around the corner out of the kitchen or come in through the door from the garage and talk to me about his day. I can't be here. It's a long journey. It's a really, really long journey, and it's so hard. But you know what? We don't have a choice, those of us who are trying to recover from this kind of thing. This is not a regular breakup. This is not what most people experience when they break up or get a divorce. This is something else. It's life-threatening. You cannot let it, you can't let it beat you. And so here's to your survival. I pray for us all, and I hope that we can get past this and enjoy our life again. Thank you, guys. Be well. Be healthy. Bye. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.